This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio today. I've uh, got my guest co-host, Graham Williams, joining me. Thanks for coming in. Always happy to be here. Lots to talk about on today's uh, program. We'll uh, be getting a lowdown on the uh, Mobile World Congress that just happened in Barcelona, Spain. This is a big trade show where they announce all the latest and greatest uh, smartphone advancements uh, for the coming year. So we'll uh, be getting uh, the announcements from there and also uh, more information on the new Samsung Galaxy S9 and S9 Plus the new flagship uh, phones uh, that are coming out from uh, the Korean manufacturer. We'll also be talking with a, a guest about this crazy uh, uh, new technology or science uh, done by some uh, folks in uh, the University of Toronto where they can actually reproduce uh, photos from brainwaves. I don't know how this works, but it sounds like it's from the future, but they're doing it now. Uh, and... Uh, of course, we've got the news. Uh, Graham, lots of things uh, happening in uh, the tech news uh, this week. Something I, I found uh, kind of scary, uh, a phone caught fire on an Air Canada flight, apparently an LG phone. So this is actually not something that's terribly unusual. It's unusual for it to happen on a flight, but lithium-ion batteries are inherently flammable uh, when they're punctured. And it sounds like that may be what happened in this particular case, um, you know, whether it was the phone was dropped or whether it was damaged in some way. Uh, if you do end up with a battery that the, uh, the substrate inside that, uh, that battery is exposed to oxygen, that thing's going to catch fire. And this is one of the reasons why we're not supposed to put lithium-ion batteries into our checked luggage, uh, because a fire in the cabin is actually quite a bit more handleable, uh, as it were, than a, a fire in, uh, in the checked luggage. So... This is one of those things where, yeah, they can happen, and it is kind of terrifying, but we're actually well-equipped to deal with that in that space. Censorship in China. You know, I traveled there back last year, and there was a number of sites, social media sites, that I was unable to use. They've blocked uh, things like Google and Facebook and Snapchat and all of that. Uh, they like to control the messaging coming out. Uh, the government, uh, the Chinese Communist Party government, uh, over the past uh, few weeks here, uh, looking at extending... Uh, their leader's uh, term from a fixed term to unlimited, mm -hmm. which is kind of weird. Yeah, but it's, it's a little dictatorial. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it looks like uh, they've been uh, clamping down on their social media sites as well, their Chinese ones, uh, apparently banning the letter N. Yeah. For and example. I mean, the, the, the real thing here is that somebody in government clearly was getting beat with, in words with friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, why the letter N? Uh, I guess the Chinese equivalent uh, is kind of like the American or Canadian X, kind of like a, an unknown quantity. So using N suggests a, a criticism of a, a never-ending term. Which is, you know, I mean, glad to see that they're really ahead of that. Uh, criticism um, seems a little draconian. I guess draconian? I, I don't know how to do that with that N. So, <laughs> uh, so some other uh, things that uh, they weren't happy about, uh, apparently... Um, a lot of people on social media were uh, comparing uh, Jinping to, uh, to Winnie the Pooh mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Just in the 100 Acre Wood, Christopher Robin decided that they were going to not be able to use letter N anymore. Yes. I got nothing. Sorry, did I say Jinping to? Um, his, uh, the leader's name is uh, Jinping and mm -hmm. uh, Jinping to is like Winnie the Pooh. Got it. And so they banned Disney <laughs> in China for, I think, a few days uh, as well. You so. could say that he couldn't bear it. Oh, God. I know, I know. You're so fast with those. <laughs> Amazon uh, behemoth, they've uh, really made forays into smart homes. They've got their Amazon Echo with the Alexa voice assistant. They've been buying up all sorts of smart home 
companies uh, that make different devices. Now they have purchased uh, Ring, which made uh, video doorbells. Yeah, and their, their video doorbell is actually quite good. Um, you know, they've been used uh, for a couple of years now. And basically, somebody rings the doorbell, you get a chance to see who that is and unlock the door. Um, Amazon's uh, system of being able to deliver packages to people's homes uh, previously has put the camera inside the house, which it still will do in order to obviously make sure that the delivery goes off correctly. But now you can actually see this Amazon person uh, as they as they approach the door. So I think this is actually a nice little rounded feature for them. As they start to build out their smartphone platform, we're going to see Amazon pick up more people like this. Um, you know, they've already got their smart plugs and their smart switches. I wouldn't be surprised to see them pick up uh, more smart bulbs and things like that as we move forwards. Well, they recently purchased, uh, purchased another connected doorbell manufacturer called Blink. Uh, so it looks like they're getting pretty serious, uh, in the smart home category. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out, uh, in the uh, coming years. Are you following all the, uh, electric cars? Heck up? yeah. Uh, Tesla, obviously, you know, the first name you think of when you think of, uh, electric cars, they are in for a lot of competition over the next few years. All the big manufacturers, uh, will be introducing their take on an electric vehicle, Porsche, no exception. They've, uh, got, uh, one called the Mission E, uh, they announced, uh, or introduced it back in 2015. Now they're expecting to release it in 2019. One of the big features of uh, this particular car is that uh, through a, uh, a turbocharger, uh, an 800 volt supercharger, uh, it can take the charging time to give you 250 more miles of range for only 15 minutes of charging. Which is absolutely fantastic because that's been the big challenge so far is sitting there and saying, you know, I can fill my car in between two to three minutes with gasoline with an internal combustion engine, um, even with some of the fastest charging right now, you know, I've still got to go and get lunch if I'm going to fill my battery. So you've got to basically plan around this to a degree. 15 minutes is not bad. I mean, 250 miles of range for 15 minutes, that's kind of acceptable. Basically plug in, go grab a snack, come on back and your car's ready to go. Um, that is actually the, the trade-off I'd be willing to make. Um, not really sure what the price tag is on this thing. $85,000. I'll take US. two. Just rapid. Does it come in red? Uh, I'm sure it does. I'll take one. I'm sure it does. <laughs> uh, but that's the thing, you know, Tesla has got to ramp up the production of their Model 3 cars. This is the, the, the one they announced uh, and they're trying to roll out right now, the the electric car or the Tesla for the masses. You know, this thing was going to be coming in around $35,000 US, uh, you know, fantastic range, but they just can't get the production numbers up on this thing. And that's really been a challenge. I mean, the Gigafactory hopefully will be helpful for that as they go forwards. I mean, for myself personally, I've been looking at the Mini Countryman because there is a hybrid electric variant for that uh, that gives you enough juice to kind of get around town most of the time. And then when you do want to go on a road trip, it's a four by four that, you know, uses uh, an ICE engine. So what's, what's the performance like on something like that? Uh, zero to 60 in six and a half seconds for an SUV. That's not bad. I would take that. Yeah, right. <laughs> what else you got in the news, Graham? Uh, other stuff that I've got in the news right now, uh, the Phoenix payment system. It looks oh, like the Canadian do we have government- to keep, Do we have to keep hearing about that thing? <laughs> oh, I, I feel bad for all the uh, the government employees that are still affected by that uh, massive screw up. Well, it looks like they're finally going to uh, going to ditch this thing. I mean, obviously brought in by the previous government and we've kind of been trying to struggle through it. It looks like they're finally saying goodbye to it, which I think maybe we can say goodbye to this story at that point. Uh, also in the news, uh, Samsung has just unveiled the wall. Have you seen this? The world's first modular micro LED TV. Yeah. They, uh, had something about that at CES. Yeah. Yeah. 146 inches. That is huge. They're going to put drywall companies out of business. <laughs> I know, but okay. So this is modular. So you don't have to bring in 146 inches. That's correct. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. you just bring this in in panels, but this must be expensive. 
It, it is going to be expensive. It goes up to 8K. Uh, they haven't put an exact price on this. Now, we actually, we, we did see this thing in action and it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you know, Samsung right now is tackling this big display market. In the past, uh, getting these big displays, these custom displays, you know, Panasonic had the 103-inch uh, plasma television and that thing was over $100,000 US. But that did also include the delivery. Do you remember the delivery with this thing? It came with its own crane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So modular displays are actually a very good way to go about this because, I mean, even just the, the setup and the installation is a, is a, is a massive change on that. So 146-inch uh, 8K display, kind of cool. My wife would never let me have that. <laughs> I've actually had to downsize my TV. We're actually um, putting uh, the TV from one wall uh, over our mantle place, mm-hmm. and I had to actually get a smaller TV for it, and it's breaking my heart. Oh, I'm so it's sorry. It's killing me. It's oh. killing me. But I got a cool mount for it. Um, the problem with the mantle, you know, over the mantle TVs, you know, in the fireplace is too tall. Too tall. Yeah. Well, I have this mount that actually extends out, extends the TV out and then down two feet. That's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And it's got a little heat sensor on it. So it'll make sure that the fire isn't like burning <laughs> your TV, which I was kind of concerned about. Um, but amazing. Yeah. No more toasted Toshiba's or, uh, or cooked Samsung's. Got it. So uh, I'm installing that over the next uh, couple of weeks and still working on the fireplace. Well, who am I kidding? I'm not working on the fireplace. My <laughs> father-in-law is who knows way more about this uh, stuff than uh, I do. Uh, but uh, once I get that uh, all installed, I will uh, you know, tell you how that all uh, goes. But um, that, that mount is super cool. I'm looking forward to seeing pictures of this. Very neat. When we come back from the break, still lots more tech to talk. We'll be getting a lowdown on the new Samsung Galaxy S9 and 9 Plus. Can they uh, give Apple and their iPhone 10 a run for their money? Stay tuned and find out. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio today. We still have lots more tech to talk, but right now I want to talk about uh, the latest in smartphones. Every year, uh, thousands of uh, journalists and industry people go to Barcelona, Spain for the Mobile World Congress, where uh, all sorts of uh, mobile things are announced and released. On the line right now, we've uh, got our friend uh, Igor Bonifacic from Mobile Syrup to uh, help give us the highlights of uh, what was happening out there. Thanks for joining us, Igor. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I, I didn't get a chance to go this year, but uh, some interesting uh, things being announced. And I think uh, Samsung looks like they stole the show before it even began with the announcement of uh, the new Samsung Galaxy S9 and S9 Plus phones. They did. And, uh, you know, it was an interesting show in that really that was, for the most part, I think what most people went to see and Samsung delivered it, you know, their latest phone. If you have an S8, you'll probably be disappointed with the quote-unquote improvements, but otherwise it, it looks like a fantastic phone, if a bit, you know, playing on the safe side. So tell us about um, some of the uh, the new features of this phone. So without getting too technical, the most kind of interesting feature is that the S9, and this is the, or I think both the S9, sorry, and the S9 Plus feature something called uh, a variable aperture camera, uh, essentially, you know, most cameras are like your eye. The iris opens and closes as more light comes in. And for the first time in a smartphone specifically, they've managed to integrate what's like a really complicated and expensive mechanism into the camera. Uh, in short, what this means is just that it'll be much better at taking uh, photos, especially in low light. Uh, so that is really as has been kind of Samsung's forte for the last little while. Um that is one of the main fee, uh, takeaways with this camera is that it would just be really crisp uh, or deliver really crisp photos. Uh, besides that, there, there's also like slow motion video, which Samsung has improved. 
Uh, but beyond that, like I said, it plays it pretty safe. It still looks like a great phone. The battery life is fantastic. It has that bezel-less screen that they introduced last year with the Infinity display. Um, and then you have, you know, front-facing stereo speakers and a bunch of other kind of small but, you know, great quality of life improvements. No headphone jack. And this one does have a headphone oh, jack. Oh, it does? Okay. Yeah, yeah. They're still keeping it around um, somehow against all odds. We'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, maybe the uh, S10 or whatever it's called. <laughs> we'll finally, yeah. Uh, so you, you said that they're playing it pretty safe. We're, we're not really seeing the revolutions uh, that we used to see in smartphone uh, releases, are we? Yeah, and interestingly, you know, so I think the kind of big, the takeaway I had from um, from Mobile World Congress was we had one manufacturer in Asus. They basically showed off what is the Android version of the iPhone 10 in the sense that it is like mostly bezel-less, but then has the notch. And the funny thing is, is that like at its uh, keynote, Samsung made fun of the notch. It was like the joke completely landed like a dud, but... You know, it really just speaks to how much these manufacturers ape one another all the time. Uh, they're constantly just trying to take the best features from each other. And I think that's kind of led to this period where your smartphone is now kind of more like your car in the sense that it's, you know, it's always going to have four wheels in some sense, but it's going to be marginally better year after year. And eventually you replace it and the new model will be significantly better than the old one, but it still does the same thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, as we go to more and more of these uh, bezel-less uh, screens, you know, where the, the phone is basically all screen, uh, design doesn't really matter so much anymore. They're all going to look the same. Yeah, there was one interesting phone shown off by, like, a Chinese, um, I believe the Chinese firm was called Devo, and I could be wrong here, but it was called the Apex um, Full view, and what was really interesting about it is it didn't have a front-facing camera. Instead, the camera popped out, like kind of like a pop-up flash on a uh, on um, you know your point-and-shoot camera. And then the speakers were built into the screen, as were as was the fingerprint sensor. So there seems to be, and from what I heard from you know people that were on the show floor, it actually like it was a concept phone, quote unquote, but it worked really well. They said to me so. I think we could see something, especially, you know, as there is this pressure to make a phone that is just complete screen on the front to kind of maybe think outside the box and create something really interesting and different. What were some of the other highlights for you? Uh, like I said, so the aping of Apple was really one. And there was something that really strange that happened at Mobile World, this year's Mobile World Congress. Typically, it's always been Samsung and LG that show off their new phones. This year... LG did not show off a completely brand new phone, but what had happened was this phone called uh, the G7 Neo, which is so, as a bit of context, LG has said that they're not going to, you know, stick to their previous release schedule and they're going to release phones when it makes sense. Um, and so I think they were really feeling the pinch from Samsung that they've constantly been beaten by their, you know, South Korean uh, competitor. And so... But this phone, somehow, images of it came out, and, uh, like, it was really interesting, like, how this happened, like, and other phones from LG, uh, a V35, which is supposed to be the next iteration of their V-series smartphone, 
was also apparently on the show floor. But none of this stuff was officially on the show floor. So it was a really interesting case where you see, you know, even LG, one of the biggest smartphone manufacturers in the world, can't seem to get all of its ducks in a row. Is it really just a race between Apple and Samsung now? Yeah, I would say so. Definitely. Um, it can. It does get more complicated when you factor in the Chinese OEMs. But I think in North America, if you, you know, people go into a store and they either ask for an iPhone or they ask for a Samsung phone, not knowing that Samsung devices are representative of a kind of a bigger ecosystem that is Android, right? I think for most people, Android is synonymous or Samsung is synonymous, excuse me, with Android. Uh, so it really does feel like, and it has really narrowed down to those two. And it's not surprising. That's just what happens in tech, right? For the longest time, it was just Microsoft, right? When it came to desktop operating systems. Igor, thanks uh, so much for joining us again. Igor Bonifacic from MobileSyrup.com, a fantastic website uh, for all your mobile uh, news uh, and uh, needs. They've got a lot of uh, great tips and tricks up there as well. We'll uh, have you on again sometime soon, Igor. Thanks so much. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk here on Get Connected. Stay tuned. You're back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio today with uh, my friend Graham Williams. Still lots more tech to talk uh, Later on, uh, we'll be finding out uh, how scientists can actually use brainwaves to recreate images that we have seen and print them out again. It sounds like science fiction, but these guys are doing it. Uh, And uh, we'll find out about 5G. You might know about 4G and 3G. These are the cell phone uh, speeds right now that uh, most of us have. Well, 5G is the next uh, iteration of that, and it's coming out in the coming months and uh, next couple of years, and we'll all be migrating to that. We'll uh, let you know what that means. Uh, But speaking of uh, mobile and phones, we talked a little bit uh, about uh, what happened over in uh, Barcelona, Spain with the Mobile World Congress, the new Samsung phones. Another uh, interesting announcement from Nokia. Yeah, so everything old is new again with Nokia's 8110. Now, you might recognize that number if you were around in the mid-90s, because in 1996, the 8110 was the banana phone that had that cool click slide which uh, showed up in The Matrix. You remember Neo gets this phone and it kind of slides out. It looks really cool. Well, Nokia has actually re-released the 8110 as a brand new, they're calling it a smart feature OS phone. So it's actually using a version of Firefox OS that uh, can run things like Facebook, Google Assistant, uh, Google Maps, does email, texts, Twitter. Is it Android? It's actually, it's Firefox OS. So it's kind of the derivation of this uh, this Firefox OS that was created uh, for this phone. It's kind of like Android, but a little bit different. Um, it's a 4G phone, and we'll do a lot of this, uh, a lot of the stuff that we've come to expect from smartphones without actually going all the way down that rabbit hole. The cool thing about this, though, is they're calling it a weekend phone that lets you disconnect from a lot of the stuff that you do, and you also get to feel like Neo with this cool slide out uh, thing that gives you a physical keypad again. Remember those? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Not a touchscreen, but. Uh... Do you think they'll actually sell any of these? I mean, is this just another gimmick? The market really is ruled by Samsung and Apple now. Well, I'm actually hearing from a lot of people that they're looking for a way to kind of disconnect and push back every once in a while. And these things are going to sell for between, I think, 130 to 160 bucks. So this might actually be a nice little, nice to have for someone who wants to be able to push away from the iPhone or the Galaxy device for the weekend and have something that's just going to let them focus on having fun and not doing work. Nokia says they want to be number three in smartphones. We're number three. In, We're <laughs> in the world. I think they've got a long way to go. 
It's, you know, it's, it's funny because, again, we take a look back at uh, Research in Motion and BlackBerry, take a look at Nokia, and in 2007, you know, they saw this oncoming storm of the iPhone and they kind of laughed in the face of it. And you've got to look at it now and say, geez, guys, you kind of missed the bus on this a little bit, eh? I actually tried out the BlackBerry Motion phone. How is it? An Android phone. It is actually really good. Good. Like it's um, beautiful size and the battery in there lasts for 32 hours. Pardon it's me? got like a 4,200 milliamp battery in it. Wow. It's huge, but it, it doesn't make the, the phone big. But um, yeah, it was fast. It's running Android because uh, they don't use their BlackBerry operating system anymore, but it's it's cool. It's got some neat features. It's got something called privacy shade. So when you enact that, uh, you know, for example, if you're on a plane and you're looking over some sensitive information, as we all do, yep. uh, privacy shade just opens up like this little kind of circle that you can move around with your finger just to look at, you know, certain sentences or paragraphs that only you can see. That's nice. I mean, BlackBerry's always been kind of security minded. So for them to return to those roots with good har- hardware design, that's actually a really nice feature. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Waterloo kid at heart. So uh, being able to see them kind of rise again from the ashes, that's, uh, that's heartening. We're going to have to take a break, but when we come back, scientists are able to recreate photos of faces that you have seen using brainwaves. We'll get the lowdown on that. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio. We have uh, an interesting uh, segment coming up here. It sounds like something out of science fiction. Toronto researchers have unveiled a new way to digitally reconstruct images from memory. On the line, we've got Max Greenwood from techvibes.com who uh, looked into this and uh, wrote a a fascinating article about it, uh, again, up on techvibes.com. Thanks for joining us, Max. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, So let's let's walk through this here. Uh, This was just a fascinating article. It's everything I dreamed of from a science fiction standpoint. What what, uh, did these researchers do? You're right. It is. It's very science fiction when you when you look at it, especially some of the images that are associated with it. So essentially, it's the use of of what's called electroencephalography data. I'm not going to say that a thousand times. I'm going to go with EEG or sorry EEG data. That's it's abbreviated to. And essentially, what happens is a, a subject is sat down and they have a sensor that's placed on top of their head. Then they they look at several different images of faces and then. Once that sensor is replaced and and taken off the head, that data is ran through uh, the software that these these two researchers have developed. The the two or the researcher's name is Dan Nemrodoff, and he's working out of uh, a man named Adrian Nestor's Visual Recognition Lab at the University of Toronto. Um, And that data is fed through a software system, and that that software system, I think, is is what is really impressive about this this kind of research. It's simply I mean, I'll, I'll take you through it, and we can maybe chat a bit about it. It's essentially um, software that recognizes and draws the faces, um, and it relies on neural networks that are trained to recognize patterns and in information. So in, in this case, it was a massive database of thousands upon thousands of faces, and then those neural networks essentially associated individual information points with these faces. And then once that neural network could actually recognize the information points or characteristics of a human face, it was then trained to associate those traits and associate them with those specific EEE or sorry, EEG brain activity patterns that were drawn from this looking at a face. After that, those sensors were picked up uh, and those patterns were recognized, and then it sprouted them out as an image. And from there, we kind of have this weird 
blurryish recognition of what the person was just looking at. And, and there's some really cool findings that come along with it. And uh, I'd love to share them with you. I mean, it's this idea that you could, you could look at a, a neutral face, a happy face, and, uh, and look exactly into what the software can kind of see and, and take from just a still image of a face. So I'm just trying to, to understand this. So uh, the, the test subjects, they got this sensor thing on their head. They're looking at faces. The computer gets all this information, and then it can spit back what they've seen? Exactly, yeah. And, of course, it's not 100%. Uh, exact reproduction of their face, but it, it draws a little picture of exactly what they look like. And and what's funny about this this sort of thing is that often the happy face is easier to recognize for people. They they did uh, examples of both a neutral sort of resting face and a happy face. And when this neural network spit back the the visual reproduction of what the test subject had looked at, like the original image of the face, it actually had a better reproduction rate with a happy face versus a neutral face. And it's odd. Uh, it, it takes a very short amount of time to reproduce these faces as well. Uh, you know, we're not talking something like minutes or hours. It literally takes less than a second. In, in this case, about 580 milliseconds to really reproduce, uh, reproduce a, a picture of a happy face in this case. And how is it reproducing those faces? You said it had a database of thousands of faces. Is it, is it basically taking those faces as a, a reference and, and yeah, putting it back? You're, you're exactly right. Sorry. Um, it, it takes these characteristics, it, uh, the neural network takes these char- uh, characteristics of a database of thousands upon thousands of faces and associates them with a specific information point. And then this EEG data that's fed in from this brain sensor that you kind of put on your head and while you're looking at it, it associates what points of a face is made up with it. Maybe it's the eyebrow, maybe it's the eyelash. It takes that, recognizes and associates that with a specific memory or point in your brain and then reproduces that into an image. So it sort of gives you like a living mirror into what you just stared at on a computer screen or maybe in real life. Well, what, what I found fascinating, you actually, uh, in your article, again, uh, you know, look up uh, Max uh, Greenwood on techvibes.com, uh, you actually had pictures of, of these uh, reconstructions. And the accuracy uh, is amazing in some cases. You're right, and, and it's, it's this idea that when we think of this, we kind of just think of, like, when I first read it, I was thinking it would be police, like, you know, police sketch level of accuracy, right? Yeah. Um, just sort of laughable sometimes, but when it comes to this, you can, you can distinctly tell the features of a person's face. You can see, like, dimples. You can see sort of the, maybe, like, the, their eye, like their eye sockets, and if they're tired or something like that, too. It's really amazing, and, and it kind of evokes this idea that, um, even if we just see a face for a very brief period of time, it sticks with us, and, and these specific things can point out, you know? And there's so many uses that this can possibly be put towards in the future. It's amazing. What kind of uses are they, th- they thinking of here? I mean, could, could police use this to reconstruct a, a criminal's face? So I, I think that's probably the main use, right, is this idea that law enforcement or people who are looking to recognize a familiar face who might have done something wrong is the, is the best way to do it, you know, finding people who commit crimes. But to me, I mean, you could use it for a whole, a whole wealth of different things. You could use it to maybe help identify people who uh, are related to one another. You could look at recreations of faces and help trace lineage back. You could look at it for, for really kind of any sort of idea that comes to your mind when it comes to recognizing people and, and drawing their similarities or drawing from a memory. And, and even based off that, uh, when 
throughout the study, they talk a little bit about beyond faces, you know, taking objects and looking at them and building them uh, in this sort of database. And, you know, it's not only going to be faces, but it could, it, it could come back to every single thing you've seen. You can recreate it at some point of where it was, you know, no longer will you lose your keys because you've seen your keys and at, at some point in your life and you'll know where they were last time. Put on this little EEG sensor <laughs> and bam, you exactly know that your keys were left in your jeans pocket and you're good to go. This is amazing. I'm just fascinated that like this technology is here now. And uh, you, you say that uh, this was uh, from uh, Canadian University. Yeah, it was at the University of Toronto Scarborough, actually. And uh, Adrian Nestor, who, who runs the, the visual recognition lab there, has done some amazing work. I mean, it's, it's fairly jargon-heavy, so if you, if you really want to dive into these studies, I, still, I, I think you should. It's worth the read. And for the images alone, it's really, it's really fantastic to see some of these things. And there's actually a video that uh, the U of T Scarborough released along with it that's, again, a fascinating watch if you don't really feel like dipping through pages and pages of a, uh, a scientific journal. We're talking with Max Greenwood from techvibes.com uh, about scientists being able to reconstruct faces uh, from, uh, from test subjects who uh, basically are wearing a, a sensor hat. Uh, it, it's fascinating technology, Max. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us on the show again. Yeah, no problem. It was great to, uh, great to chat with you, Mike. Max Greenwood from techvibes.com, a fantastic website for all your uh, tech news and uh, needs. When we come back, more tech to talk here on Get Connected, including uh, 5G technology being rolled out in some rural towns here in Canada. Back after this. 5G is a term you're going to hear more and more in the coming months and uh, years. Right now on our cell phone networks, we're using uh, 4G or LTE. 5G uh, promises uh, more speeds, uh, more devices being able to be hooked up at the same time. There's uh, a bunch of companies already uh, testing out 5G networks, uh, including uh, Bell and Huawei here in Canada. On the line, we've got our good friend Alex Coop from IT World Canada. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. So before we get into uh, the uh, the story of uh, Huawei uh, and Bell uh, creating a, a 5G network, uh, Maybe you can explain to our listeners what 5G is all about. Yeah, well, it's it's sort of the next wave, the next generation of of a mobile network that's uh, that's faster than 4G. It's it's the it's the broadband that your your cell phone is is powered through, and and that's um, every year there are new levels of of broadband connectivity that makes your uh, that connects you to the internet and, and allows you to stream things like Netflix and other videos much faster. And so, 5G is is the is the next version of of that uh, wireless technology. But why should people care? I mean, obviously, we always want faster uh, cell phone speeds. Uh, but what else will 5G enable us to do? Well, right now, especially in Canada, the the biggest implications uh, of 5G and mobile broadband network has has to do with rural uh, communities where um, other traditional internet uh, connectivity so Wi-Fi um, and and uh, fiber those kinds of internet infrastructure uh, are much less available in rural uh, areas I actually grew up um, in, in rural Ontario and in cottage country and in some of those areas internet is very difficult to come by and uh, especially in places uh, in Ontario where the geography uh, doesn't really allow for 
um, bigger telecoms to set up shop there because there are not only just not enough customers for them to uh, to, to make it worth their while, but there is, this is also the geography problem. There are hills, trees that really block the connections uh, to those uh, uh, to the devices that telecoms are building. Those those big towers. So uh, 5G, uh, right now 4G, and these mobile networks. These are very good alternatives for those rural areas. So so that's the biggest implication of, of 5G right now, which is uh, much faster than 4G. And, and there's a lot of research being done to advance uh, 5G uh, uh, communications. And so the, um, that's where it's going to have the biggest impact, I think. And that's, it's, it's in those rural communities where traditional forms of Internet are, are less accessible. And uh, from what I understand, uh, Bell uh, is working with uh, Huawei uh, to actually roll something out uh, in rural Ontario, uh, like a, a complete 5G network. Yeah, that's right. They um, Huawei has sort of been in the mix uh, and, and working with uh, uh, with telecoms such as Bell and, and Canada in general uh, for some time now. So this isn't necessarily too new, but but again, they uh, this just kind of reflects that emphasis on rural communities where uh, internet is much harder to come by. So Huawei, yeah, is going to has already done some trial runs, and uh, according to one of their spokesperson uh, that we spoke to, they have actually um, you know done some testing with actual customers, and and they're looking to roll out some some 5G capabilities in rural uh, Ontario, and I believe is uh, in in Ottawa uh, in the Quebec area. So. Um, that's where some of this uh, 5G technology is going to be kind of rolling out first, and then um, I'm, I'm sure other communities will follow suit, But um, and, and other companies are also looking into 5G as well. But when we're talking about Huawei, uh, Ontario and the uh, Ottawa area is kind of where they're focused on. So um, there's a lot of research being done and a lot of money being pumped into 5G, um, and it's because it really can enable smaller communities to, to tap into Internet uh, connectivity in ways they couldn't before. Uh, now, that's not to say that Wi-Fi and, and fiber Internet is going to be phased out because of this, but is it, it is an, an excellent alternative for some of those smaller communities. Any idea when we can start seeing 5G uh, roll out into the rest of Canada, like more of the urban areas? Well, that's probably going to, I mean, it's, I think it's going to happen this year, and, and um, um, the 5G market is expected to be worth uh, $36 billion globally by 2020. So um, I think this, the foundation is, is being laid right now to, to reach that, um, first to reach that point for Canada to sort of to become a bigger player in that. And in order for that to happen, it has to roll out across the country. Um, and uh, um, a lot of research has been, uh, a lot of studies have been done about kind of what 2018 is going to mean uh, when it comes to 5G. Um, and there's a lot of predictions out there that suggest that 25% um, uh, of Canadians will uh, get their Internet, all their home Internet, from uh, data access uh, from cellular, cellular mobile networks, such as 5G and LTE, uh, in 2018. So um, this, this trend is kind of already happening, and, and it's, it's just going to continue down, uh, down that road where people are tapping into mobile networks to access the Internet. Um, over traditional methods such as Wi-Fi. So 
Uh, it's kind of already happening, and, and it's just going to continue to do so uh, as time goes on. We're talking with Alex Coop from IT World Canada. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. That's all the time we have left here on Get Connected. Don't forget to listen to the app show tomorrow, Sunday at 10 a.m. here on CKNW 980 and across the Chorus Radio Network. Mike Agarbo and Graham Williams signing off. We'll see you again next time. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.